Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, hey, church family, hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible nearby, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Once again, Jeff mentioned this earlier, but let's just go ahead and state the abundantly obvious. Uh, This is a different kind of Easter. Uh, As the pastor of a church, you you kind of always want Easter to be a big deal. Uh, Like for me, I actually cringe every time that I hear somebody use the word epic to refer to something church related. But all that said, you kind of want Easter to be epic. I mean, Easter is a big deal. It's the day that we celebrate Jesus. Jesus coming back from the dead. Uh, and so if there's one day that you want to pull out all the stops, it's kind of this particular day. Jesus is alive. Let's make a big deal out of it. Uh, but this Easter is quite different for, for me and for most every other pastor that I know. For most of us, we're in a mostly empty room with maybe a video camera or a small video crew filming or streaming our best attempt at an Easter service. And I think we can just admit together that's significantly less good than the other ways of doing Easter. And I would say it's actually really important that we admit that together because it's only once we admit it that we can grieve that and and all the other negative effects that this coronavirus pandemic has had on our world. You know, grief is actually a vital part of any type of loss or tragedy, especially one the size and scope of the COVID-19 situation. In fact, there was an article that came out just a few weeks ago in the Harvard Business Review titled, That Discomfort That You're Feeling Is Grief. And it was an article meant to help us as a society come to terms with the importance of grieving everything going on in our world right now. And grief is not something that we're super familiar with as a society at large. To to be certain, many of us have experienced grief on an individual level with the death of family or close friends or whatever the case may be, but hardly any of us really have a framework for the type of collective grief that we're feeling sort of on a global scale over the past few months. Most of us, after all, have lived during periods of relative prosperity and ease and comfort in American society. So a global pandemic and a likely recession near after is going to be a very new experience for a lot of people in America. And in many ways, grieving is just not something that we have a ton of experience doing. So on the one hand, this virus, the coronavirus, will eventually become a thing of the past. It it may take a toll on society before then, but at some point, COVID-19 will be something that we talk about in the past tense. I think all the experts actually agree on at least that much. But on the other hand, things will be different as a result of all of this. In the grief article that I mentioned, it uses the example of how airline travel changed permanently after the events of 9-11. So we don't go through airport security today the same way that we did before all of that happened back in 2001. 
we don't do it the same way. A favorite comedian of mine is fond of saying that before 9-11, airport security consisted of basically a high five as you went through the checkpoint, and he's not far off. But it's nowhere near that easy to go to the airport now. By contrast, now some of us get anxious just walking up to the TSA agent because we don't know what they're going to have to do or how long it's going to take them to do it. But all of this to say this whole ordeal that we're in right now will involve loss and change and things will be different afterwards than they were before. And we can try to ignore that or wish it away or pretend that it doesn't happen or we can deal with it head on and try to grieve it. And I think it's important that we actually grieve it for both our emotional health and our spiritual health. Following Jesus must allow room for real and even lasting and enduring types of grief. You know, a lot of people assume that faith is a means to happiness. That the goal of believing in some sort of God is is to just sort of have a divine therapist up in the sky who can help put us in a better mood when things go wrong. Or maybe at least he can sort of distract us from all the unpleasant things happening in our world. I think a lot of people think that that's what it means to adhere to a particular religion. But at least when it comes to Christianity, that's not really the case at all. That's just not what Christianity is at its core. I've always appreciated C.S. Lewis's take on that. He says this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew that a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. You've got to appreciate Lewis's honesty. Christianity is not a means to happiness. It's not even a distraction from unhappiness. It's not a means of escape from unpleasant emotions and feelings in our world. After all, right smack in the middle of our faith is a gruesome story about how the God that we all worship as God was tortured within inches of his life and then crucified on a Roman cross. That's not exactly a detail that you leave in there if the goal is to give everyone pleasant feelings. So that's just not what Christianity is at its core. Rather, I would argue that a true encounter with the Christian faith will guide you right into the heart of grief and loss and brokenness well before it leads you away from it or out of it. And that is what brings us to our passage for today, Romans chapter 8. Here is how the Apostle Paul describes the human experience specifically through the lens of Christianity. Read with me starting in verse 22 of Romans 8. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. So Paul, trying to describe the current state of affairs in the world, chooses to use the word groaning. It's an interesting choice of words, right? So he he doesn't say that we in the world at large, that we're just humming along. He doesn't say that we're effortlessly gliding into a utopian future. He doesn't say we're clicking on all cylinders, none of that. He says we are, quote, groaning. But he doesn't just stop with the word groaning. He wants to make sure that we all understand the specific type of groaning that he is referring to. He says it's the types of groaning that you hear from a woman in the pains of childbirth. And keep in mind, he is writing all of this pre-morphine and epidurals. 
So really groaning is probably putting it mildly and delicately. Maybe screaming or terrified shrieks of horror would better describe what he's talking about here. However you want to put it, my simple point is that Paul does not hold back when he describes the state of our world. He says, quote, the entire creation is groaning. Now keep reading in verse 23 of our passage with me. He says, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So it's not just that creation around us is groaning. We are also groaning, Paul says. We also realize that things in our world are not as they should be. We look around us and we see things like poverty and greed and racism and sexism and abuse and corruption and dozens of other things going on that are precisely not how the world should be. And right now, we we look at country after country in our world doing everything they can to contain the spread of a potentially lethal virus. We all just collectively know that this is not how things are supposed to be in the world. So no one, not even the most callous human being you know, can look at something like the coronavirus and go, well, I'm glad natural selection is finally doing its job. Survival of the fittest at work here, let's just wait and cheer it on. None of us do that. We all look instead at what's happening, the devastation that this thing is bringing, and we grieve. To grieve is to groan in Paul's language. But then Paul says that all of this groaning, all of this mourning and grieving and being frustrated by the world as it is, is pointing us forward to something. Something that Paul calls, quote, the adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. Now, what could that be talking about? What does Paul mean when he says those things? Well, in short, he's talking about what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. That one day followers of Jesus will inhabit a world where everything that makes us groan now is no longer a reality. A place where cancer does not exist. A place where car accidents don't happen. A place where nobody dies too young or even dies at all. And a place where pandemics don't exist anymore. That is the future that we are headed towards if we belong to Jesus. So the question is, why would Paul bring that up? Why is that a big deal that he brings that into this conversation about the world itself groaning? Well, we actually read why he brings it up in verse 24. It says this, For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So the reason that Paul brings this up at its core is because that reality, the new heavens and the new earth, is meant to give us hope. Now, let's talk briefly about the idea of hope, because as we've often said around City Church, I don't know that the word hope means what most people assume that it means. So hope for most people sounds like we're talking about some sort of vague, naive optimism of some sort. As in, well, I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope the Vols are finally on the upswing this season, or maybe even more currently and more seriously, I hope I don't catch the coronavirus. 
We use the word hope most of the time like we use the word wish. It means I'm completely uncertain about something, but I'm trying my best to be positive about it in some way. So I think it's easy for us to assume that when the Bible brings up the word hope, that's what it's talking about, is just some sort of vague positivity about the world around us. But I want you to see that that's not really what Paul means by the word hope at all. For Paul, hope is not based in uncertainty, but rather certainty. He uses the word hope like we would use a word like expect or anticipate. For Paul, to hope in something means to be certain of it, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's coming, even if we don't know precisely how or when it's coming. So to use Paul's metaphor in Romans 8, a woman experiencing labor pains when she's nine months pregnant, she knows that those pains are because she's about to have a baby. She's not confused about why that pain is there. In fact, it's usually the pain itself that points her forward to what's coming. And in the same way, Paul wants us as followers of Jesus to allow the, the grief, the fear, the anxiety that we feel at certain points in life. He wants all of that to point us forward to what's coming. That is what it means to hope as a follower of Jesus. So don't hear this wrong. This is not some sort of like trite response from Paul towards suffering in the world that we inhabit. He's not saying, hey, don't worry, one day you'll be in heaven so you don't have to be sad now. No, just as there are real tears, real pain, real anxiety in a delivery room, Paul expects there to be real tears and real pain and real anxiety this side of the new heavens and new earth. But also in a delivery room, all of those things are pointing forward to something beautiful that comes after. They're, they're all headed somewhere. And what Paul is trying to get us to see in this passage is that all of this is headed somewhere. Even the groaning, even the suffering that we currently experience in our world, that it's all pointing forward to something that comes after. And the things that it's pointing forward to will one day completely eclipse everything that we feel before we get there. That's precisely what Paul actually tries to get across just a few verses earlier before our passage in Romans 8. He says this in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So, just like the joy that a new mom feels holding her baby outweighs the pain that she felt before, so will the new heavens and the new earth far overshadow the pain that we currently experience in our present world. Speaking of that day, the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21 puts it like this. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So there's the promise. That there is a day coming, maybe in a thousand years or maybe tomorrow, where groaning will give way to rejoicing. 
where there will no longer be any tears or death or mourning or pain or cancer or contagious diseases or freak accidents. Those things will be over once and for all because Jesus will have made every single thing new. And that is what Easter is all about. It's about hope right when we need it. Because the story of Easter is that one early morning when the disciples thought that all was lost in their world, they showed up to a tomb only to find that it was empty. They discovered that God had already begun the process of making all things new. That in the here and now, God had set into motion a world where dead people come back to life, where sin and death are not the end of the story, and where things become finally just as they should be, once and for all. So in the coming days and weeks, we don't know exactly what's going to happen in our world, just like the disciples didn't back then. All the data currently points to the fact that at least for the state of Tennessee, the worst is still ahead of us with all of this. And that means we may be in this bizarre sort of holding pattern for a few more weeks or a couple months. The simple fact is that we just don't know at this point. But what we do know is that there is a day coming where all of this becomes a distant memory. And through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God has begun that process in the here and now. In the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, Paul speaks about Jesus' own resurrection as a type of first fruits. That's the language that he uses there, that Jesus' resurrection was a first fruits of what's about to come. And what he means is that Jesus' resurrection actually guarantees that wonderful day in the future where we experience the new heavens and the new earth. So think about it like this. Uh, this time of year in the spring, or more like a month ago, all the colors on the trees in our city start to make their appearance. Trees that have had nothing on them but branches for months, all of a sudden they start turning green and yellow and pink and all sorts of different colors. And when we see the trees start doing that every year, we know that spring is coming, that warmer days are coming, that lake weather and pool weather and beach weather are coming. So in a way, those colors coming out on the trees are a first fruits of all of that. They point us forward to what is coming in the future. And Paul says in a similar way, the fact that our Savior, after being murdered, came back to life is the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth. That it guarantees that that day is on the horizon for those of us who follow Jesus. So this Easter, when we have plenty of reasons to grieve, let's grieve. We have plenty of reasons to groan, so let's groan. But, but as we groan, we also hope. Groaning and hoping are not mutually exclusive activities. We can mourn the world as it presently is and also anticipate the day when all things are made new. So may it be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are making all things new. God, that you guarantee that day is in the future and that you have guaranteed it by your death and resurrection. So God, would you help us to hope? God, not to, 
not to look at the world with some sort of vague, naive optimism, but would you help us to actually hope to anticipate the day where you make all things new? And would you help that to shape how we go about life in the here and now, how we interact with people, how we think about ourselves, how we think about you and your kingdom? God, would you allow your resurrection and the coming new heavens and the new earth to to impact every bit of that? God, would you help it to shape us as your people to live resurrection-inspired lives? Let me ask this in your name. Amen.